0: You are listening to Road to CEO, nothing but in-depth interviews with executives about their journeys as CEO. I'm your host, Will Marlowe, and I hope you enjoy the show. I'm here today with Darren Clement, the former CEO and founder of Maponics, who successfully exited by selling to multi-billion dollar tech company Pitney Bowes. We're here to talk about his journey in business, what led him to be CEO, and what he learned along the way. Darren, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to The Road to CEO.
1: Thanks, Well, It's great to be here.
0: So let's start at the beginning. Tell us about Maponics. What type of company was it?
1: Well, it started as, I guess, you might call it just a pure mapping company. So um, the initial business plan was that we would create maps for companies, uh, businesses, to help them with their sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. So at the time, direct mail was still a big, it was a big deal. And so figuring out how to create maps of zip codes, maps of sales territories, maps of these things called carrier routes. Um, it was too much expense for businesses to invest in all that infrastructure themselves. So sure. they outsourced it to us. As you can tell from the way I stated that, that didn't stay our business model for long. So um, uh, just giving you the treetops here, we, we changed our business model and started to provide mapping data that allowed companies, much bigger companies to do analytics themselves. And that really is what transformed the company into a success.
0: What was the general timeline? So when you start, what year was it when you founded the company?
1: Founded the company in September of 2001. Uh, and that, that was a rough month, uh, for sure, for the least of, of the issues that that was a tough month is is for my business. Yeah. But um, we we stayed with that business model for maybe four years. Okay. And I, I'm going to guess, gosh, it's so long ago. I'm going to guess it was around 2005 that we switched business models. It was right around the same time that Google really launched a viable Google Maps, um, okay. so I think that was around 2005.
0: Okay, so you founded it 2001. So this is the 20th anniversary of the founding of Onyx.
1: Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, we're having this conversation in September. 20 years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, I I I'm obviously older than in my 30s, but like I I feel like I'm still in my 30s. How could it have been 20 years ago? It's amazing. Oh, wow. Mind-blowing.
0: Yeah. really is. Um, so you founded it two, 20 years ago. Uh, four to five years later, you um, you pivoted. Would you describe that as a pivot when you shifted? Yeah, I mean, that's or... what
1: everybody calls it. Um, I didn't go to business school, and I don't like all the business school terms, but people call it pivot. Um, I think I try to avoid that kind of jargon and i just say we just changed we changed our business model
0: yeah and that was based on and you highlighted that that was when google produced its first real viable google map product is that because now how did that change things for map onyx why did that matter
1: it didn't matter in, in in the sense that that was not a reason that we changed our business model um it was just a big milestone in the mapping world, which is why I kind of had it anchored in my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It did affect us in the long run in very positive ways. I think it's also fortuitous that we changed our business model because it created a perception that maps and custom maps were a commodity. Mm So you can imagine, again, this is in hindsight. Um, I'll I'll tell you why we changed our business model, but to answer your specific question, up until then, there was say MapQuest, but that was directions. If you wanted to have a custom version of MapQuest, you had to drop Mm $100,000. If you wanted just a custom map, you could call MapOnix and depending on what you wanted, it might be 50 bucks or it might be $500. But you could create a custom map. When Google cr- created Google Maps, I shouldn't say created, because they actually acquired a couple companies, companies, in some technology, but they had an API that made customizing maps much easier. Mm-hmm. And so in hindsight, that would have spelled the death of the, initial iteration of MapOnix regardless. Right. But the reason we changed, we weren't succeeding. You know, for every dollar of revenue, we had 99 cents a cost. Um, We were doing the custom mapping, but we were doing it manually. Mm-hmm. And of course we did a bunch of things to try to automate it. And, but that automation was the difference between a dollar fifty of costs for every dollar of revenue, and ninety nine cents of costs. So we we were able to be just a hair profitable, but it wasn't working, and we kept getting requests from companies to create, I guess what what they were calling neighborhood maps, mm-hmm. and and we were like, well, neighborhood, well, like we'll, we'll just we'll we'll map out the area for you, and we'll put the zip codes on there, and Like, no, 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 we want to see Chinatown. We want to see where where Soho starts and stops. And we're like, no, there's no government agency that defines where those things are. How could we map them? And uh, I'll skip over some of the details, but essentially we had a customer who had done a pilot project on creating neighborhoods for like five cities
0: Mm -hmm. meaning they
1: went in and drew these boundaries of chinatown um soho hell's kitchen Mm -hmm. we realized later that it was crap but we were like okay they did it we could do it Mm. so we worked out a deal with them where we acquired those five cities we built out another 20 cities ourselves and Oh my gosh the appetite for that data was higher than anything we had ever created and we said all right now we've got to figure out how to pay the bills with our old business model while going full bore on the new business model
0: I see that's fascinating so so talk about funding for a moment so sure. you know when we talk about tech companies we think of venture capital funding you know, probably first seed rounds, that sort of thing. How did you fund Map Onyx?
1: All self-funded. So the initial start of Map Onyx back in 2001, uh, I managed to get a contract for some custom mapping before I even started the company. So that was... Mm -hmm. You Know for all you guys out there who might be listening who aren't CEOs and you're thinking about starting a company, if you can start a company with a contract in hand, you are a thousand light years away from the way most people start companies, which is a hope and a dream and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of late nights. So it was a good start. Um, when we changed our business model, um, It was just a, you know, looking under the seat cushions for money kind of thing Mm -hmm. and scraping together and, and trying to put in some long hours. Um, at that point I had acquired another, not acquired, that sounds awful. Um, uh, I had hired someone who was, um, really good on the technical side and he eventually became a partner. Mm -hmm. And so he was doing some of the digitizing. I was doing some of the digitizing. Kind of weekend work, mm-hmm. and so we never had to at that point entertain outside funding, um, which was good because I don't—I didn't know how to do any of that. I do now, but back then I didn't know how to talk to venture capitalists or angels, or um, it was a very foreign concept. But but we didn't—we didn't go down that path.
0: Yeah, um, I I love hearing about. Companies that are essentially funding out of revenue, you know, uh, I would assume that keeps that helps you maintain a large degree of control. Um, did you, did, at any point, did you wish you could go out and, and pull in some growth capital, or were you kind of satisfied, sort of looking under, kind of being creative about funding?
1: We definitely talked about getting outside funding a lot, particularly around that time of the change of business um we also had an idea around that um that time frame for another product i won't go into too deep too much detail but another product and we're like we can't do all of this if we do all of this we're going to fail and so we said well we either need to get outside funding or we need to abandon this other product and in the end, we decided to abandon the product. We talked to a couple of, of VCs, uh, cause we were looking at that level of revenue investing, you know, one to $2 million. And um, we ended up getting a verbal offer from one and kind of in a weird coincidence that I think was a really good thing. Um, the lead VC had a death in the family, unfortunately. Um, and, hit him pretty hard. And he took about two weeks where everything was shut down for what he was working on. And during that time we started having second guesses. And so by the time we got back in touch, we said, don't bother writing up the term sheet. And we never went down the path. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it was good because then when it came time to exit and I'm jumping around a lot in, in time scope, but when it came time to exit we didn't have these outside investors to worry about.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We did our exit deal on our terms. Uh, It was, I still owned a, a super majority of the company at that point. And so it was a much simpler process to exit. I couldn't imagine trying to exit. With a whole bunch of investors on, mm-hmm. on our balance sheet, that would not be uh, equity sheet. I would not be, I would not be where we are today. I don't think if I had. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's a wrong decision for other companies. and And since selling my company, I I do a lot of angel investing myself, and I certainly expect those companies to be exiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't want to get the idea out there that it's a bad idea in all cases. In my case, it would not have been a good deal.
0: I see. So you've done two things that I think a lot of CEOs aspire to do. One is you've sold your company and you sold it on your terms, as you said. And the other thing you did is you replaced yourself as CEO before you exited. Can you talk about that? So how did did that end up happening? Was that a plan you had all along? It was an
1: absolute plan Um, because when it came time that we felt like, okay, we've really built a great company. Um, it's worth something. We started to, to, I'll say soft shop the company. Mm-hmm. And there were two things that made those deals not go through. One is, uh, the valuation wasn't what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we were like greedy per se, but we were like, well, if that's all we're going to get, let's just keep. Keep riding it the way it is, but also it was clear they wanted me to stick around. Mm. So it was going to be the kind of thing where we'd be acquired, and I'd be stuck working for the acquirer for a couple years. I was burning out, mm-hmm. I, and and I think of myself first and foremost as an entrepreneur, not a CEO. Mm-hmm. The thought of being an executive vice president at some billion dollar company made my skin crawl. Like there was no way I was going to fit in to that culture. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of stepped away from that, that soft shopping of the company with the realization that, okay, we need, we need to set our targeted X when we do exit, but We need to replace me. I'm burning out. So, even if we never sell the company, I don't want to be CEO with a couple hundred employees. I don't want to. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be executive vice president at some big company once we do exit. So, let's find a replacement. Miraculously, like I say, miraculous because I can't imagine anybody out there being as lucky as I was in what I'm about to describe. I will say that I believe intentions matter and setting the intention that we were going to replace Darren as CEO was an important first step. Mm -hmm. Right around that time, someone that I had worked with, I guess 10 years prior, 15 years prior, at a bigger company in a, in the same space, was coming back from an overseas assignment. He had been overseas for a couple of years. He was feeling like he had kind of reached the ceiling at that company because the next level he was never gonna to get to. Mm-hmm. And he and I started talking and I was like, you know what, let's just go for it. You come on as president, of Onyx for six months. And if that all works out, we reverse roles, you become CEO, I become president, and then we sell this company. And And it worked. And I think part of the reason it worked was not just that he knew this space, but he was a good guy, like is a good guy. I mean, he's, <laughs> he still is a good guy. Um, like ethical, um hardworking, smart, um, well-rounded. What I what I've said to people since, and and I've said it to him, is he and I had so similar of a view of the role of leader, um, of, of where the company could go. He was just better. He was better than me. And so, and, and, and although some of my friends might laugh to hear like me say like, like, like I have a big ego, but I also have a, a real appreciation for people who are better than me. Whatever we're talking about, you know, weightlifting or CEO-ship, he was better. And I gladly turned it over to him because I knew it was in good hands. And in that year or so that he was CEO and I was president, and we before we started reshopping the company, he made essentially he did everything I was doing but just twice as better, twice as good. And mm-hmm. the company's uh, bottom line improved, the infrastructure within the company improved, um, the management processes within the company improved. And ultimately, when an acquirer did uh, acquire us, one of the things they loved was it was it was turnkey.
0: Yeah,
1: they were able to acquire the company without having to retool everything. Um, so I might be getting ahead of your question, but um, that's in a, in a nutshell what what happened.
0: No, that's that's exactly right. I, I I think that was exactly what I was asking, and I can imagine that an acquirer would love that because if they see that the CEO has been replaced once successfully in their mind, I'm sure the CEO could be replaced as needed. And that makes it 10 times more attractive. I think you're right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that does say, you know, intention aside, I think that does sound lucky because as we both know, you can hunt for a long time to find the ideal director, VP, CEO, I mean, just gets harder as you yeah. uh, as you go. So it sounds like that was a fast process. And and there was a, you know, a good element of, of luck in there. Yes, for sure. Great. So let's go let's let's back up for a minute. Did you always want to be CEO? Did you always know that you that, that your skin would crawl working at a big company?
1: Um, I always knew the latter, like I always knew. So my first exposure to big company was um, summer interns during college at IBM. So my background was in physics and the, the amount of waste, the amount of bureaucracy, you know, the, the whole thing of, you know, 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. I saw that at IBM and it, I was just like, no way am I ever going to be part of that but I'd always had that entrepreneurial streak, you know, as a kid, as as a high schooler. Um, and so I always knew I was going to be starting my company and running my company. I never liked the term CEO, um, and I only even adopted it at Maponics once we got to a certain size and it seemed like our customers expected me to have that title. Um, I always preferred the, the title of founder. It just felt that's what fits me. Yeah. And and I don't have any other uh, real successes to point to, but anytime I've been starting a company has really been when I feel right. Um, and with that, a certain amount of leadership, but not leadership in terms of of controlling others some of the biggest mistakes I've made as CEO or leader is when I've, I've delved even anywhere close to trying to control. Um, that's not my style. My style is much more, um, create the vision, do a lot of the work and get like-minded people around me. Mm -hmm. And then once something's working, 80 to ninety percent turn it over to somebody else to really fine-tune it and I I had actually been applying that concept throughout the company and throughout other companies and I'm just realizing as I'm saying that that that's exactly what I did with replacing myself as CEO. I got to the company the company to a point where it was you know 80 to 90 percent. And then when Dan Adams came in as CEO, he was able to take it to that next level. But I, did, I approached that with everything. Uh, the programs I would write in the early days, the sales function that I would, would, would do. I'm very good at getting things to 80 to 90%. And I'm also very good at then releasing them to somebody else to get to that final stage.
0: I, I can relate to that a lot. I, of course, am founder and CEO of my company, and I feel very similarly. I am really good at having a strategic vision. I'm good at at seeing an opportunity, and I'm good at building it out 80 to 90 percent in terms of processes and and functions. Uh and then what I've learned to do is bring people on who can who who excel in areas where I'm weak, who can uh, you know, who can, can carry something over goal lines, you know, you know, that sort of thing. And, and so I, I a lot of this really resonates with me really well.
1: Good, good. Yeah. I mean, and, and hopefully some of the, the people listening to, to this can learn, you have to accept your nature, you know what I mean? Like, and so hearing you talk about what you're good at
0: mm-hmm.
1: and where you need to then turn it over to somebody else it requires a lot of um, self-awareness. And I think too many people don't have that and they they say to themselves, well, I need to be CEO. And if you really care about the company and care about the, the people and care about the customers, you need to figure out, are you really the right person to keep being CEO? And and I'm not necessarily asking this of you. Will, you know, I don't know enough about your company to know, but uh, my guess is in your case, yeah, you do need to be CEO because of the way your company is structured and the and the way you're branded. In my case, I didn't need to do that. And okay. and it, it would have been the death of the company if I had held in my mind, oh, Darren's ego needs to be CEO. If I, if I wasn't able to divorce my persona from the CEO title, I wouldn't have been successful. And you have to be able to do that in life, right? Whatever you're doing in life, you have to really be self-aware enough to know what you're good at and what you're not good at.
0: So, uh, so I'm also a wrestling coach, a, a high school wrestling coach and, um, I try to teach the guys who are wrestling and girls, a girls wrestling is one of the biggest we don't we don't have a girls team but it's one of the fastest growing sports in in the country and um and uh so I try to tell the the kids that you know you shouldn't be aiming for being first place in every tournament. You know, you shouldn't be aiming for being a state champion or, you know, all these things that that wrestlers especially at the higher levels get really obsessed with because those are very arbitrary Titles, very arbitrary designations. And technically, they don't really have control over those things. What they have control over is okay, well, I've been practicing these moves. I want to go out into my match, whatever, whoever, it doesn't matter who I'm wrestling. I want to perform the moves that I've practiced as well as I possibly can. You know, that's that is the kind of thing where mentally, if they can become self aware enough that that is what they truly care about then they're going to win the greatest number of matches that they're capable of. You know, if they go out there thinking, oh, I want to be first or or this other guy I'm wrestling, you know, he was a state champion before and I wasn't, you know, then they're going to perform less well. I think that it's it's very similar in business where if you are not self-aware and you're really concerned with, okay, I, I need to make VP this year, I need to be or I need to to be the ceo regardless of what that means for the company i think it's going to hurt performance yep yep so how did you become self aware like did was that something had, have you always been a self aware person
1: <laughs> um, wow that's a that's a hard thing i guess i'll say i think i have
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we asked I, the hard I questions like, yeah, we was asked I the hard questions here. to
1: know that i was self aware um I think I've been relatively self-aware, meaning, you know, I'm, you know, I'm now 52. I'm way more self-aware now than I was, say, at 30. But, but I do know that, you know, even in high school, so, so in high school, I thought I was on track to be a premier heavy metal guitarist. I thought that was going to be my career. Okay. But I was self-aware enough to know that there were aspects of that that didn't fit my personality, the, the constant being on the road in particular. Um, and so I started asking myself, well, what within the music industry would be better for me? And I never actually pursued it, but I know I was was really thinking that more the production side probably would have been a better career for me. Um, And then I got turned on to physics and went down that path. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, I'm kind of thinking out loud and saying, I do think I've been a fairly self-aware person. And for the most part, if I think about other people that I would designate as self-aware, they've either always been that way, or sadly they've had some trauma that has mm. forced them the people who are unself aware have always been blithely unaware of their own they can't even get out of their own way and i think they've always been that way so i don't know nature nurture and how much can you change that's that's a different podcast <laughs>
0: Well, we do try to ask the tough questions here, but uh, we 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 should move on to um, uh, something you mentioned about making mistakes when you try to control things. Um, what, just in general, do you can you think back to any memorable mistakes you made? Anything you regret, or do you not think of mistakes that way?
1: I really don't. Um, you know, in life, I can point to a couple. Mistakes that I've made um, at Maponics. Um, I'm not. I'm not a fatalist. I'm not one who says um, everything happens for a reason, and just let the universe control everything. I'm not that at all. But I do think. I do think that a lot of the choices and decisions I made at Onyx either turned out to be good, or we learned enough from them that I don't think of them as mistakes. The things that come to mind are like little dumb things. Like I remember in one meeting we had just lost money for like the second month in a row. Mm -hmm. This was in the early days. And And I was, I was scared. I was angry and we had a little management meeting and I think the F word slipped out. I tried always to never swear and I saw people react. And so this is a stupid thing, what I'm about to say. So I proceeded to just swear for the next half hour thinking that that would somehow spark people to work harder or somehow do something different it was it was dumb of me on so many levels these people were already working so hard they didn't want the company to fail they were doing their best um some things are out of your control um some things were my own fault for maybe not setting the right direction or not being clear about what i expected but Sitting there swearing at people, that was stupid. So so things like that. But in terms of major business decisions, I can't really remember anything that I would consider to be a mistake because I think everything that didn't turn out the way I hoped still had big learnings that came from them.
0: It's interesting that you still remember that that meeting early on where you, where you got frustrated. And it sounds to me like you, you know, you, you swore and you saw that that elicited some reaction and you really wanted them to be doing, you know, you wanted a reaction and you kind of just kept on with it. And then, and then you felt some regret over it or, or you did, cause even these 20 years later, but essentially that would have been 20 years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let me call it, call it 14, 15, 16 years ago, but Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah, it's funny how things like that stick with you. And I'm sure um, if I, if I, you know, I, I'll share something on a personal level. So I remember with one of my daughters, um, she was uh, a vocal child and, and you knew when she was upset um, and you knew when she was happy and, and, She was always kind of flitting around. And I remember we were out to dinner one night with my in-laws. And like, this is, this is again, like, if you were to ask me, what were some of the biggest mistakes you made as a parent? Like this night, she was like five or something. I was just trying to keep her near the table. So I simply just was holding her hand. Normally, you know, if you're holding a child, I don't know, you're holding a child's hand it's kind of loose you can keep a good grip right while still being kind of loose i locked my hand in a position well she's a little kid she's not used to that she she tries to flit away and it it doesn't move because i i had decided i'm gonna just keep her in place and she twisted her arm and it really hurt her and i know it really hurt her And I instantly was like, oh my God. I just hurt my child, not by trying to hurt them, but by trying to just keep them in place. And to this day, it's one of those things that I'm just like, why it wasn't broken, it wasn't strained. It wasn't, you know, she the next day she didn't even remember it. But to me, that was a failure as a dad because it was more about me wanting my child to behave than me being okay with the fact that my kid was was just being a kid
0: yeah that's really it's really interesting on a couple levels one reason it's interesting to me is that you highlighted how when you tried to control things too much at maponix it was yeah. that was a mistake and and then you know that so it, it's interesting I think I think that um, you know I, I think probably a lot of people can relate to that you know? yeah
1: and I, I think I'm I'm actually based on other people I've been around i I really don't try to control other people. I do try to control myself and I have a lot of mechanisms and a lot of things that I try to um, everything from willpower to um, structures that, that keep me on a path towards a particular goal. But the reason that a lot of these things stick out for me is because it's totally against my nature. I I believe I'm not somebody who tries to control others. And whenever I do, it ends badly. (laughs) And so now, you know, full on you know 52 year old guy uh i'm much better about just the people around me communicating what i expect or what i what i want from the situation and letting them make their decisions and if their decisions don't fit with me okay that's fine it just it just means maybe the endeavor that we're about to undertake isn't going to work out but trying to control people never works. Um, at least for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about, um, mistakes. Uh, let's talk for a moment about some good decisions that you made and, um, and I'll, I'll I'll go first. So when I think of good decisions that I made early on as CEO, one of the decisions was just picking the right horse. You know, I could have, you know, I have a marketing agency. I could have chosen To be a social media marketer i could have chosen to to only do search engine optimization but instead i chose to do paid google ads and i did it essentially when google was really growing and google's still growing but uh which just illustrates why that was a good a good focus because you know i was one of the very earliest google partners and what a lot of people don't realize in business is a lot of i mean that's why strategy is so important i mean you could be all things to all people and that's difficult there's a lot of i mean i mean even if you're great at being all things to all people you're going to end up having to do a lot of work um if you're just pick one thing you can and you pick the right one thing then that is you know that's a good decision so even though that's kind of i mean i mean i'm not bragging when i say it. i mean frankly i'm trying to highlight how it's like one simple thing I did. And then that turned into a lot of really good results. Um, what's something that you think of when you think of some good decisions that you've made as CEO or as founder?
1: Well, I mentioned one, um, the de- the decision to go down that path of digitizing neighborhoods. Yeah. Um. It could have ended up being a bad decision.
0: Yeah,
1: Um, It could have squandered a bunch of resources and maybe that other product that we were entertaining at the same time that I alluded to, maybe that would have been the right path. So we all want to think that our decisions that turn out good are because of how smart we are. And our decisions that turn out bad are because of all those screwed up people out there. You know, it, did, it didn't fail because of me; it failed because of them. But we have to own both, right? You have to own, or or, or either own both or don't own both. But you can't mix and match. Um, so in terms of you know, that's that was definitely a good decision. And of course, replacing myself as CEO. But let me see if I can come up with another one that might be more general to to people who are trying to be a leader at a company. The general practice of hiring the right people cannot be understated, uh, cannot be overstated. Um, It is so critical. And I'm thinking of of some hires. Of course, I'm glossing over the hires that didn't work out, right? (laughs) But a few hires that made such a difference, um, and it comes back to that theme that I've been going on, which is getting something to that eighty percent mark, and then having the right person to take it to the next level. And so early on, on the technical side, you know, and early on when you're starting a company, you're doing everything right. Yeah, the first area that I gave up was the technical realm and that person that i brought in to take that over was better than me and took for what the company was at that point took it from 80% to 90 95%. Um, when the company changed we needed somebody else to take it to the the new 100%. but i i did a similar thing on the sales front. Um, right around the time that we developed the neighborhood boundaries We brought in a gentleman who ended up being the head of sales and I felt completely comfortable. Again, an ethical person who was super good at getting deals done and getting to decision makers, but ethically. And so so when you, you think about hiring somebody, it's easy to focus on talent. It's harder to focus on ethics because mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of um, rubrics for testing ethics. Yeah. You know, you can go on a on a sales call with somebody, but they can hide what they're doing when you're not around. Um, programming, well, somebody can just program, and so you can look at the program. It works great. They're fast at programming. They're you know they they make a bunch of uh, notes and it's clear and other people can edit blah 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 but are they going to tell you the truth when they're behind schedule or are they going to blow smoke up your butt and then be late anyway um are they going to use coercive tactics with customers those kind of things um i guess i will say in the spirit of your question I generally made good decisions around hiring people with good ethics. And I think Map Onyx was a company that, um, not that we didn't make mistakes, but I think our customers and our employees would have said, you know what, this company wants to do not just the right things, but wants to do things right and wants to do things in a way that we all can feel good about at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think setting that tone for the company was a good decision.
0: That's that's interesting. So you set the tone and you emphasized that as a part of the hiring process to to a certain degree. Did you write a company culture or was it more just something that was yeah, permeated things for other reasons?
1: We wrote a company culture. Um, I think we called it the Maponics Ethics Document. Creative okay. name, right? <laughs> um, um, and it's funny. I I don't think it's a direct correlation, but it was after that that swearing tirade that I had. Wow. Um, so again, I'm not perfect, right? You know. Um, I don't think it's ethical to start artificially, you know, swearing at your staff, but um, but we did, and and we did it as a team. Um, and there were some employees who didn't want to be part of it. So fine, you didn't have to. We were small then; I think maybe thirty people or something. Right. And and I also remember some people saying, like, "Why do we need to do this? This is this is a waste of time." And I. I stuck to it. I was like, "No, this is important." Um, What we didn't do, honestly, as much as we should have, is regularly review it and revise it. It did become part of the hiring documentation, though. So staff were forced to forced to read and sign that they have read that document before they became employees. Um I don't think we did that with outside contract staff but for staff for full time staff we did. So I don't, so you you probably never signed that. Um probably you not.
0: But it? I do I do recall it um you know so long ago that it's a vague memory but um but it does it does sound familiar. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I had totally forgotten about that till you asked the question. I'm sure I've got a copy somewhere but um now that I'm remembering it, I man, what a great process that yeah. was. I don't even remember the things that were in it, but it almost doesn't matter because yeah because it was something we did as a company together and it and it cemented the fact that we do care about good ethics. It yeah. matters.
0: Yeah. So I, I yeah, I would give you a lot of credit for. Going through that exercise, keeping it as a part of the company. I've done that myself. And, you know, even when we started with four or five people, maybe, you know, at that point, you know, at that point I I took through the time to go through that exercise and it was immensely valuable. And but I also relate to your comment about, you know, it was a good thing to Put it together and to do it, we probably could have done better to revise it or revisit it or kind of go through that exercise again. Because I, I that's how I feel right now. Is uh, you know, it is something we go through with every new hire, but we could, you know, th- there are long periods where you know the whole company might not get a refresher.
1: Yeah, but it's easy, right? When you're when you are an entrepreneur, there's a, a strong tendency to, to be like. There's there's a tendency to not revisit things, yeah, because you're always on to the next. You're always like, oh, all well, right, what's next? What's that's next? Done. Where we going next? You know, yeah. and so like, oh, we have the ethics document, great. And you assume everybody has it in their head that everybody practices it, and and that's not always true. And especially as the company grows and you're bringing in new people, um, things do need to be revisited. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. Great question, and 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 thank you for for asking it because I, I mean I smile thinking about about that process and how that really was a good step in the evolution of Maponics.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've had an interesting experience as CEO. You know, because I mean, you you replaced yourself, you sold your company, you've talked about things where maybe you know maybe you didn't want to be CEO. What can you speak a little bit more about what, how you were ready to move on? You know, you were, you know, how, how did you know it was time and that the company could handle having a different CEO or was that just an easy decision because the, you just knew the company was ready?
1: Ah, uh, um, I didn't know the company was ready. Okay. I knew I was ready. Okay. I hoped the company was ready and and as i said part of it was because when we soft shopped the company feedback was that i was going to have to stick around but part of it was i was burnt out um yeah. part of the burnout was just if you're if your nature is an entrepreneur you start to get frustrated if too much of your time is spent on I'm managing systems or managing people because you're not innovating. You know, mm-hmm. other people on the company might be doing it, but you aren't. And and for me, I I wasn't doing any innovating. Yeah. And too much too much of my time was spent managing people and processes. So I knew I was ready. Um. And if we hadn't sold the company, I would have liked to maybe move into more of an R&D role Mm -hmm. or or maybe a business development kind of a role that kind of blends what the market might be looking for into, you know, feedback into the product development process. That would have been much more entrepreneurial for me. But, you know, as we've said many times, you know, it did lead to selling the company. Um... I, know, I, I guess that's no. the, the closest answer I
0: have. I, no, I think I think that's good. I mean, that's a self awareness thing. I mean, I think I think that um, you know you were ready, and so therefore, you had to get the company ready.
1: And and to be clear, the company was only ready. My company was only ready because Dan Adams, the 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 yeah. CEO who replaced me, was so great. Yeah. If he wasn't. No, the company wasn't ready to say goodbye to Darren. Yeah. Not because they loved Darren, but because they were used to me. They knew what to expect. They knew how to do their jobs. They things weren't weren't unknown. Yeah. You bring in a new CEO. I'm sure everybody had trepidation. Yeah. But Dan's vibe, his style, very similar to mine, just better. Um. His abilities, very similar to mine, just better. And so for the staff, I think, I, and actually I don't just think. I know because I spoke to several both during and, you know, once in a while i run into somebody at a coffee shop after the exit. And they've all said that that because of that, that transition for Dan to replace me wasn't so bad for them. Mm-hmm. They And so it turns out they were ready, mm-hmm. but nobody knew that. Right. And I don't know how you would know that if, if he had been a, a bad CEO in some way or another, um, we might've still been able to sell the company, but I'm not sure that the, the staff would have, would have been, they, I don't think they would have stuck through.
0: And in see. this case,
1: everybody stuck through. Nobody left during the the acquisition process, we did have to, there were a couple of people who were just not performing yeah. and we needed to take care of that before the the exit. But, but uh, nobody said, Oh my gosh, you're selling the company. We're, we're bolting. Um, at least not that I'm aware of. So.
0: Yeah. So I've got two more questions. Um, you're located and your business. Map onyx was located in white river junction, Vermont. Um. Which is obviously, you know, it's not New York City, it's not Silicon Valley. Um, yeah. What's the role of location in in ru- creating and running a company?
1: Well, I'd like to give you a more strategic answer than you're going to get.
0: Um, I started the company in Vermont
1: because that's where I lived. Yeah. Um, I couldn't imagine living in Silicon Valley, and therefore, I couldn't imagine starting a company in Silicon Valley. I'm sure there are certain spaces that you have to be in a certain location, you know, uh, biotech. I mean, actually, no, I shouldn't even say that because there are several successful biotech companies right in that area around white river junction. So, um, maybe a different way of, of answering you besides just being flippant and saying, I I lived in Vermont where I started in Vermont is the tactics you need to employ in order to be successful in a rural place are obviously different than in suburbia and different than in an urban setting. Um, we struggled in the early years getting good staff not just because we couldn't pay but because there's nothing around. What would what would spouses do? Yeah. you know is there a job for them? Um, and even a very simple thing like uh when you got exposed to Map Onyx, we were in White River Junction, and there was a little town, you could walk to a great coffee shop, there were some restaurants yeah. right there. Where I started Map Onyx was actually uh, a town over called Norwich, Vermont. Mm-hmm. And there was none of that. <laughs> so I remember some people who would, would come out for interviews. And they're like, "Oh, we love Vermont, you know, hiking, biking, water, blah blah blah." Where where do you guys go for lunch? <laughs> oh, wait, coffee is that little drip coffee thing over in the corner? Like really? And I remember on one level thing like, "Oh my gosh, you pre-Madonna's like you need you need so much." And then when we moved to White River Junction, I'm like, "Oh no." I'm with you. (laughs) I can never go back to not having a coffee shop nearby. You know, like, like it was such a game changer, that little bit of difference. So I would definitely like, don't start up in some abandoned barn because it's cute and people have to drive 20 minutes to get a good cup of coffee. No, don't be that rural. Right. But you you can definitely start a company anywhere. And get good staff. Um, if you have just enough of the right mix of of ambiance with mm. amenities, and White River Junction, is just an example, I'm not here to promote White River Junction, but um, it's great. It's it's mm. got a good mix of everything, and I think, I mean. <clears throat> Lots of changes have gone with uh, what was Maponics, but um, I know for the first couple of years they were able to grow very quickly after they acquired Maponics, and the location was not a hurdle at all.
0: Okay, so it's interesting though because it is a center for the mapping ecosystem because of a couple companies. So did that inspire you in some way, or, I mean, you must have been thinking about that proximity. So on the one hand, it isn't a set, you know, I was, and I was kind of flippant too about, you know, it's not Silicon Valley, it's not New York, but it is actually kind of a center in a, of that GIS system type mapping. Yeah, Yeah.
1: And that's a good, so I had worked for one of those companies which right. is actually where I had met Dan Adams, and so he was still working for that company when he came over. So yes, the proximity to people with experience in the space, yeah, absolutely made a difference. I didn't do that consciously. Don't get me—I mean, yeah, that's where I live so that's where I was going to start it. Yeah, but was it beneficial that there were—I don't even want to call it an ecosystem because yeah. it was too small for the, to call it that. there was, there was some, some type of ectoplasm of talent related to GIS and mapping yeah. that we were able to draw on. and some of our initial employees had worked for one of those other companies, but not, not as many as you might think. Yeah. I would say maybe 10 to 15%. Interesting., you know, it wasn't that much, but it was enough without those 10 or 15% probably a bunch of others wouldn't have been able to learn as quickly and yeah. and the company wouldn't have grown as fast.
0: Yeah. So um so you exited several years back or uh, what are you up to these days? Uh, pretty much retired, which is good.
1: Nice. Um uh, I mentioned earlier a little bit about angel investing, you know, it's yep. it's really it's interesting. I don't really have the drive to start a full-on company again. Um, mm-hmm. After the exit, I played around with starting companies because I didn't know what else to do, right? Like, And then I, I, I kind of, in that self-awareness thing, realized, well, hold on. There's other ways to scratch that itch. And so, um, so investing in startups uh, takes some of my time, but honestly, most of my time, I'm... I'm trying to become a a highly ranked um, master's athlete in Olympic weightlifting, uh, shot put, discus, and hammer throw. So wow.
0: most of my time ta- time is spent training. That's that's fascinating. So what is a master's what what is is, is that a, a designation? A master's master's age group. Age group. I think. So yeah, you're so like what's the age of bracket?
1: uh depends on the the sport um but uh most of those are five-year increments okay yeah five five-year increments of age
0: fascinating yeah. okay so we should look for you in uh in competition at some point
1: yeah i mean to be fair nobody cares about the masters um at my age in the sense that you're not going to see any of us on tv
0: You're talking to a, you're talking to a guy who focuses on high school wrestling. So I'm very familiar with, uh, with underappreciated sports.
1: Right, right, right. And, and like, you know, the Olympics, wrestling's big, Olympic weightlifting big, but those are, you know, those are the, in this case, guys, um, who are, you know, between 25 and 35, they're at the peak of their abilities. Um, but uh, it doesn't make it any less fun, and it doesn't yeah. change the drive. Like you were saying earlier with with wrestling, where when you get out to compete, if you're thinking too much about your ranking or too yeah. much about your win versus losses, you're gonna you're gonna trip on yourself. You need to think about where am I in my my practice my you know abilities. How do I execute the best I can execute? In your case, with wrestling, you have a, a direct opponent that you obviously can't predict and control. Um, in my case, I have opponents who have their own throws to do, their own lifts that they're trying to make. I can't control if they make them or not. I can only control what I do, and and hope that over time my ability continues to improve and my ranking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fascinating. I think it's great that you can you get to focus on that. Um so I want to thank you again for being here on Road to CEO. This has been a great episode. Um and I will be looking for you on the Master Circuit. I'd like to to you know, I'm not sure I'm sh- I'm sh- even though you you say it's not on TV, I'm sure it's on YouTube. So uh Yeah, there's uh,
1: some stuff on YouTube and you can always go on to the uh, USA Weightlifting and look up rankings, and look up Darren Clement, and um, you can go on Masters uh, Track. I think it's called Masters Track and Field, which you know keeps all those rankings. Um, please don't send me emails. I don't want to hear how 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 much hope you have for me. I don't need all that. But but you can silently cheer me
0: on, and I'd appreciate it. Very nice, very nice. Well, thanks again for coming.
1: Yeah, thank you. This has been fun. Well.